So, uh, thank you very much for, for joining us for this uh, session introducing my new book. Um, Richard Dawkins uh, here uh, published his uh, book, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide, last year, um, which uh, the Guardian newspaper uh, dubbed an accessible junior version of The God Delusion, The God Delusion being his uh, most famous uh, best-selling uh, book, which has gone through two editions and in this book uh, Dawkins is doing a similar kind of thing uh, aimed at a slightly uh, younger uh, audience bracket I'd say sort of um, undergraduates uh, around that kind of age sixth form students um, and it was uh, well received in certain uh, secular reviews such as paleontologist Neil Shubin here uh, talking about uh, Dawkins' wit and logic and separating myth from reality and so on. But I thought it was a, a good opportunity to write a book aimed at the same uh, audience, um, helping people to, to think a little bit more critically about what Dawkins had to say and to, to think about um, the ideas that he's touching on, because it's quite a wide-ranging book, um, looking at um, issues about God, and the Bible and Jesus and evolution, biology and cosmology and a whole sort of gamut of things. So here's uh, the front cover of my book. Uh, I just stuck a question mark after the outgoing God, a beginner's guide to Richard Dawkins and, and the God debate. And obviously that the publisher has sort of aped the style of the, um, the cover of Dawkins' own book to reflect that this is a, a book responding to it. So as you pick up a, a book off the shelf in the in the bookshop or you're looking, uh, browsing online, you want to read some of the information about it. Here's from the, the back of the, the front cover introducing the book. Uh, it says, join a cast of characters with different perspectives, thinking through some of the biggest questions in life. As they discuss atheist Richard Dawkins' book, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide. Uh, written in the form of a dialogue between members of a student book club, Outgoing God, a beginner's guide to Richard Dawkins and the God debate, encourages critical thinking about Professor Dawkins' arguments concerning God, Jesus, and the Bible. And it's always nice to see a, a range of um, endorsement quotes uh, from folks, and I was very pleased to, to get this sort of range of endorsements from people in different specialisations because of the book being so broad ranging so uh, we've got endorsements here from New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg uh, philosopher uh, Paul Copan um, from a certain Lars Dahler who's a professor in systematic theology and Christian apologetics um, J.P. Moreland, uh, another philosopher from the States, and uh, Martin Hyde, who's a professor of Semitic languages at um, Philipp University in Marburg, Germany. Um, so, um, reflecting something of the, the breadth uh, of the book, which is nice. And I just want to, to mention, of course, that this book uh, in the dedication is uh, dedicated to the colleagues and students that I've met through NLA University College at Gimlekollen, Christiansand, Norway. Uh, and it's also um, co-dedicated to uh, my goddaughter, uh, my, my newest goddaughter, Sophie Alexander McCarricka, who was uh, born 27th of December 2019, whilst I was uh, writing this book. 
So here's the, the, the contents page, and just to give you again an idea of the, the breadth of stuff that's, that's in here. Uh, and uh, instead of chapters, I've labelled them meetings because they're, they're meetings of the book club. Uh, so after the preface, the, the first meeting here, uh, One God Isn't Much Like Another, is looking at issues of defining you know, what is atheism, what is agnosticism, uh, looking at what Dawkins talks in his first chapter a lot about uh, polytheism, belief in many finite gods uh, versus uh, theism and uh, looking at issues about the uh, Christian doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity. Um, so this is sort of what sort of God are we talking about? Um, chapter 2, uh, Testing the New Testament, uh, looks at the historical reliability of the New Testament, uh, particularly the Gospels, and looks at the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, third meeting, Testing the Old Testament, the historical reliability of the Old Testament is issue here. Fourth meeting, can there be good without God? Looking at uh, meta-ethical uh, issues, philosophically speaking, uh, particularly focusing on uh, the moral argument for God, um, which we'll come back to a little bit later. Uh, in the fifth meeting, we're looking at uh, normative ethics in this chapter of how do we decide what is, what is good. Uh, and then in the sixth meeting, um, looking at the good God of the good book, in which we look at Dawkins' criticisms of the, the ethical character of uh, the biblical uh, character of God. Now, I just want to note that uh, I've reversed here the order of things that Dawkins does it in. Dawkins, in his book, introduces his moral critique of Yahweh as a character whether or not you believe he exists uh, in the Bible in the Old Testament and he introduces that topic of critiquing God's moral character before he looks at the topics of um, to do with ethics and uh, you know what is right and wrong and how do we decide what's right and wrong and um, I reckon that was the wrong way around to do things uh, and uh, so I had the, the characters decide that they would, they would first of all look at the issues of, of, of meta-ethics and how we judge ethics before uh, trying to judge the ethics of, of God. Uh, the seventh meeting, uh, Evolution and Beyond, looks at Dawkins, uh, condenses several chapters of Dawkins' books in, into one discussion here where he's looking at uh, evolution as a reply really to the, the biological design argument. Uh, so I cover those issues there. Um, the eighth chapter, did we evolve to be religious and nice? Uh, looking at Dawkins' evolutionary explanations of religious belief and the foundations of ethical behaviour. Uh, chapter nine, from science to atheism, uh, is uh, looking at issues to do with cosmology. Uh, we look at the, the so-called Kalam cosmological argument from the universe having a beginning and at the fine-tuning uh, design argument. And then there's a sort of wrap-up discussion uh, about what the students have made of the, the whole book and of their experience discussing it in the 10th meeting. And then there are various selected resources and biography and so on. Let me um, read to you from the opening chapter uh, of the book here. Uh, this is uh, right from uh, the beginning of chapter one, just to give you an intro. Uh, the snow 
made a satisfying scrunching sound under Hiromi's combat boots as she walked towards the campus coffee cup cafe. Her first year abroad had been enjoyable, but also a little lonely. This year, she'd joined a student book club. It would be a good way to meet people, and the book they were going to discuss dealt with a topic of genuine interest. Arriving at her destination, Hiromi stopped to remove her headphones and face mask, pocketing them inside her black leather jacket. Peering through the window, she could see why the cafe would be glad to fill some tables after lunchtime. The place was fairly empty, with a scattering of students absorbed by their phones or typing away at laptops, and several people sitting at a table in the corner opposite the barista station. That must be the club. Hiromi inhaled a deep lungful of cold air before pushing at the door and stepping into a warmth flavoured by coffee beans and steamed milk. Stamping the snow off her boots onto the sodden welcome mat, Hiromi heard a voice inviting her to take a place at the corner table. The voice belonged to a lady Hiromi recognised from the group's Facebook page as Professor Sophie Minerva, a tall woman with a calm, business-like expression and a warm but penetrating gaze. As Hiromi settled into the only remaining seat at the table, the professor asked everyone to introduce themselves and what they thought about the God question. Around the table were, and then we, we introduce the, the characters in the story. Starting indeed with Professor, professor Sophie Minerva herself. Um, Sophie, of course, being the, the English uh, version of um, the Greek Sophia, uh, wisdom, uh, as in philosophia, love of wisdom, and uh, Minerva is actually the, the Roman goddess of wisdom, the kind of Roman equivalent of uh, Athene. Uh, Hiromi, who we've just uh, met, uh, is an international student from Japan uh, studying uh, music and philosophy. And then we have uh, Thomas, who's an undergraduate studying classical antiquity and who describes himself as a sceptic and a, a neo-atheist. He is uh, really influenced by folks like Dawkins. We also have Douglas, uh, a postgrad student of philosophy, who describes himself as a classical atheist. Um, he is the kind of atheist who thinks that Richard Dawkins is the kind of atheist who gives atheism a bad name. And then we have uh, Astrid, or at least who in English readers are going to pronounce it, uh, Astrid. Uh, I chose uh, that name um, because it means uh, godly strength. Uh, Astrid, uh, an international postgrad student from Norway, who describes herself as a Christian um, and having been inspired by studying communication and worldviews at NLA University College's uh, Christensen campus. She's now um, studying theology abroad. So that's our, our cast of, uh, of characters. I tried to, to make them sort of rounded characters with, with, with interests that they would uh, bring uh, to the reader. Um, they've got subjects of study and hobbies that, that sort of contribute to the discussion or uh, offer readers some additional cultural enrichment, the kind of hidden curriculum of going to university. For example, Thomas uh, is able to quote various bits of classical literature that are relevant uh, to their discussions, and uh, he uh, knits uh, as a hobby. Uh, I link to recipes for Japanese and Norwegian snacks uh, that the group uh, eat on occasion, 
um, Hiromi and Astrid uh, bond over discussing uh, music uh, and there's even a YouTube musical playlist uh, for the book uh, called Hiromi's Playlist and I tried to make them characters with, with some depth as well there's a, a little bit of sort of soap opera uh, going on uh, in the book um, Hiromi is pursuing some deep questions about the nature of love um, she wants to know if love is just a meaningless uh, subjective byproduct of nature or if love is something that's rooted in the, in the depth of objective reality and it becomes clear gradually through the book that there's something going on with Astrid's mental health as well so here's just one passage from the beginning of a, another chapter uh, Astrid slouched her way through the softly falling snow each exhaled breath condensed into a ghostly cloud of white she was beginning to feel as numb on the outside as on the inside she thought about turning around and heading back to bed but she kept going one foot in front of the other Astrid found herself settling into a chair at the usual table in the campus coffee cup cafe Glancing up, she saw she was the last to arrive. Professor Minerva waved off her apology and offered to buy her a drink. She declined. The professor insisted, something about putting colour in her cheeks. Not wanting to be rude, Astrid asked for a black coffee. Unzipping her woollen jumper, she began fiddling with her tablet. I also wanted to give you a little chunk of, uh, of dialogue, of the discussion between the characters and show how sort of using the characters with their different um, perspectives that they're kind of representing uh, helps in this sort of traditional sort of philosophical writing form of the dialogue that goes all the way back to, to Plato's dialogues, of course. And here uh, is a, a section of the, the students discussing the moral argument. So at this stage, Astrid has, has introduced the basics of the moral argument and Thomas uh, seems to be quite sort of taken with this and wants to, to go through it carefully. So, uh, Thomas, let me go through this step by step. Uh, the first premise of the moral argument claims that if morality is objective, then there's something, that is something that's explained by the existence of God. Astrid, using her tablet, which usually indicates they're about to quote something, um, well, at the very least, I think the existence of a holy good God offers the most plausible account of the existence of objective moral claims. As, as H.P. Owen argues, objective moral claims transcend every human person, and it is contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the, the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. So the moral argument doesn't claim to offer a complete description of God, but it certainly argues against naturalism and for the existence of some kind of moral God with a capital G. Thomas. I see. Uh, and the other premise is that morality is objective. Astrid. That's right. Thomas. And given both premises, it follows that a morally perfect transcendent deity exists or probably exists at any rate 
Hiromi, yes, Astrid accepts this argument. Douglas accepts the first premise and avoids the conclusion by rejecting the second premise. You've accepted the second premise by, by endorsing moral objectivism. So, in order to avoid the conclusion, you presumably reject the first premise. Thomas, I guess I should, but, but the idea that we could have objective, transcendent moral obligations without a transcendent someone to whom we're obligated does seem implausible. Douglas, another line of argument worth considering is that we experience moral duties as commands that, that tell us how we ought to behave. Thomas, I suppose so. Douglas, well, if these moral commands have an objective validity, then it would seem there must be an objectively existent moral commander, some transcendent personal reality, with the absolute moral authority to command our behaviour. Thomas, I can see the sense in that. Douglas, and that's why I deny any objective validity to moral duties. Thomas, hang on, why don't you draw the conclusion that there's a transcendent moral commander? Douglas, using his phone. Well, as, as Gerald Marx, who's a professor emeritus of philosophy at the University of New Haven, explains, the religious fundamentalists are correct. Without God, there is no morality. But they're incorrect, I still believe, about there being a god. Hence, I believe, there is no morality. In sum, while theists take the obvious existence of moral commands to be a kind of proof of the existence of a commander, i.e. God, I now take the non-existence of a commander as a kind of proof that there are no commands, i.e. morality. Thomas, I see, but if I do that, I can't make any objective moral criticisms of, of anyone, including religious people and including the biblical character of Yahweh, without contradicting myself. What do you make of this moral argument, Hiromi? Oh, Hiromi, it doesn't claim to establish everything theists believe about God, though it clearly favours theism over atheism. Uh, personally, I agree with Douglas that objective morality stands or falls with the existence or non-existence of a transcendent holy good God. And I guess I see the attractions of believing in objective morality backed by the authority of a holy good deity. But I don't want to accept that worldview just because I'd like it to be true not without being satisfied that the arguments for moral objectivism are stronger than the arguments for atheism. That's something I'm still thinking about, so, so I'm currently agnostic. Astrid. But the very fact that you're concerned about the integrity of your beliefs, about treating opposing arguments fairly and not being unduly influenced by personal preference shows how deeply committed you are to the existence of objective moral values, obligations and duties. Hiromi, you mean that my commitment to reasoning objectively 
carries an implicit commitment to objective morality? Astrid, that's right. If we try and separate talk about thinking from talk about morality, we can't coherently think about thinking with integrity, fairness or objectivity. The same goes for the commitment you just expressed to not contradicting yourself, Thomas. Douglas, and what about my commitment to moral subjectivism? Astrid, I'd say your admirable commitment to philosophical consistency is ultimately moral in nature. I'd say you've got to wrestle with the question posed by the, the nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Why should you pay attention to the truth? Hiromi, that's a really interesting question. Sophie, I suggest we leave that as a point for private meditation and move on to other matters. So you see how the different characters are representing different positions that you can take on the issue as they, they talk it through. Here are a few key observations that struck me uh, about Dawkins uh, reading his book. Uh, in an interview promoting Outgrowing God, Dawkins said that he wants to, to rid the world, quote, of anything that's not evidence-based where factual knowledge is concerned. Uh, things which are based on authority rather than on evidence. The strange thing is, is that Dawkins in Outgrowing God repeatedly makes unevidenced assertions, truth claims, that he expects readers to believe purely on the authority of his say-so. Um, and that also, many of these assertions that he makes are just simply factually wrong. Uh, so, as Thomas says at one stage, uh, I noted over a dozen false statements in Outgrowing God on points like the supposed lack of archaeological evidence for the existence of King David, or camels supposedly being an anachronism in the Old Testament. He gets his facts wrong about Josephus's references to Jesus and about the design of the human eye and so on. Outgrowing God is it's basically riddled with misinformation. For example, Dawkins asserts that uh, Abraham's camels are uh, an anachronism out of historical place uh, because, quote, that the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. This is uh, something that the Old Testament story has just got wrong. But as uh, Egyptologist Dr. Kenneth Kitchen says, uh, it is often asserted that the mention of camels and of their use is an anachronism in Genesis. This charge is simply not true as there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and even use of this animal in the early 2nd millennium BC, and even earlier. Dawkins asserts uh, that, quote, King David made no impact either on archaeology or on written history outside the Bible. He simply doesn't seem to know that in the 1990s the publication of fragments of an old Aramaic stele from Tel Dan famously brought to light the first 
recognised non-biblical mention of the 10th century King David in a text that reflects events of the year 841 and would have been set up at no great interval after that date. Uh, this stone inscription, uh, which you can see a picture of here, uh, mentions the house of David, uh, the dynasty of the biblical king David. As Eric Klein is a professor of classics and anthropology and history at George Washington University, explains in his little um, very short introduction to biblical archaeology in that Oxford series of books, uh, says uh, he says the finding of this inscription brought to an end the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person. Uh, Dawkins, just to take a, one example of his sort of engagement with biblical theology, in a sense, he objects to the third commandment. Um, you know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Uh, Dawkins asserts. Uh, this means you mustn't use swear words involving God's name, like God damn it, or don't be such a goddamn fool. You can see why God might not like it, but it doesn't seem like a terribly serious crime, does it? That's his criticism of the Third Commandment. But the Third Commandment uh, isn't a rule against using certain nouns as expletives. Um, to misuse the name of the Lord is to, to misrepresent God's character by invoking his approval or his authority for something evil. The third commandment, in other words, defends truth and integrity against the temptation to deliberately misrepresent the ultimate source of morality, God, for immoral gain. Um, as Joy Davidman wrote in her famous book on the, the Ten Commandments, uh, Smoke on the Mountain, uh, she says the third commandment affirms that the Lord was a Lord of righteousness. He was not to be invoked for evil ends. Here's a quote from uh, Astrid in the book, um, using her tablet again, saying, um, in that New Scientist interview, uh, which the professor had circulated to the group, uh, Dawkins says he wants, quote, to encourage people to think for themselves, whilst being keen not to indoctrinate, because that's, of course, what we criticise religious people for doing. But it seems to me that in Outgrowing God, Dawkins relies on people treating him as an authority and not thinking for themselves about his claims. Outgrowing God is an exercise in indoctrination. Well, by contrast with Dawkins, uh, in my book, I provide references for things that I claim. I provide a bibliography. I provide recommended resources both in the book and on the website and I, I use the, the, the character of Sophie uh, to teach readers critical thinking skills as they go through the book uh, as Sophie introduces her students to various logical fallacies that Dawkins falls into. So I was keen to, to use my book definitely not to, to indoctrinate, although clearly I'm arguing for a position. Uh, but to um, represent a range of views on the issues and to give um, backup references, book references in the bibliography, etc., uh, to the claims that I make and also to introduce um, 
readers two different logical fallacies, uh, which means there I'm equipping them to uh, apply those critical thinking skills equally uh, to what Dawkins says, but also, of course, to, to what I'm saying. Now, without giving away anything in terms of the, the soap opera of the book, um, it's fair to say that some characters change their minds a little bit in the course of the discussion. Some quite a lot. But uh, I will say that none of the characters becomes a Christian by the end of the book. Uh, this, I think, is realistic and I hope it invites non-Christian readers particularly to explore further uh, without kind of feeling uh, browbeaten by the book into a position. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen that American uh, movie, uh, God's Not Dead. There's been a whole series of God's Not Dead movies, uh, but in the first one where a, uh, a student in a philosophy class gets the opportunity to sort of present a, a presentation about the existence of God and the arguments for God's existence to a, a, a sceptical cohort of his fellow students and kind of at the, the end of the film um, all the, the students are now convinced that there is a God and it's, um, it's really unrealistic. Um, so uh, I didn't want to uh, to do that and um, present uh, changing people's minds uh, as a really easy thing to do just by trotting out uh, some arguments, but wanted to show how in the course of the discussion you do see the characters understanding each other more, learning more, changing their minds somewhat on some issues, um, some more than others. Uh, so that hopefully gives gives you a uh, sort of overview of the the range of issues we're dealing with and and how I'm dealing with it, uh, and the fact that I've I've used this dialogical form uh, to integrate some sort of um, personal drama in there, some various interests, uh, a hidden curriculum, uh, and a range of topics, and to teach critical thinking skills and help people to to think further about these important issues. On my uh, website at peterswilliams.com, there's a, a page for the book, uh, and there's just a screen grab from that page. You can see I, I list on the website additional uh, resources. I've got a, a list of meeting by re meeting resources uh, of, of books and articles and videos and podcasts and so on, uh, which I keep updated. Um, link to the the preview on Google Books, uh, links to various podcasts that relate to the topic, even a uh, a, a link to uh, ambient coffee shop sounds uh, since the book's set in a coffee shop if you want to put coffee shop sounds on in the background um, there are a couple of YouTube playlists I've created for the book one one on the on the, the topics which is called just the outgrowing God question mark YouTube playlist and I also I mentioned uh, Hiromi's playlist of uh, music from artists who are mentioned uh, in uh, outgrowing God and then uh, various video longer and shorter videos uh, that I have uh, that relate to the topic. Uh, so all of that you can you can find uh, online on my website.